I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning, and we're going to, we're going to be today in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning as we continue in our sermon series. We're actually wrapping up our sermon series today called Deep Emotion. We've been focusing on emotions over the last few weeks, and today one in particular, an emotion that many of us have felt over the last year and a half. Throughout our pandemic that we've been through, many of us have, maybe we've lost loved ones. Maybe we've lost mom, dads, maybe brothers, sisters, grandfathers. Maybe we've lost someone we were so close to. And, and all because of a pandemic, all because of COVID-19, we are in a time of loss. And not only have we lost, have many of us lost, many of us have had to manage through this loss. We've had to manage through it alone. If you went to the hospital any time in the last 18 months or so with a loved one, chances are they were put up into a room and you weren't. Many people had to stay outside in their car, or they had to go home, or you could not go into the hospital to be with your loved ones in, the, in their most vulnerable moments. Hearts have been at home for many months now in deep, deep sorrow. And it's more than simply a loss of a loved one, maybe, in your life that we've been struggling through. Many people have lost so many other things through the pandemic. There's people who have lost jobs. There's people who have lost homes because of the pandemic. We've seen people who have lost the security of their income. They have lost their sense of comfort, their sense of routine. There have been so many losses. And just like some of the other emotions that we have studied in this series Sorrow and agony and, and heartache and anguish and, and pain and sadness and, and unhappiness and misery. All of these emotions are built into us. Yes, they're, they're emotions that God gave us, but they are a mess if they are out of control. That is going to leave us without direction at all. And it'll even leave us without the ability to recognize direction if these emotions become so overpowering and we can't control them at all. Now, I'm not going to get up here. I'm not going to stand up today and say, hey, suck it up, buttercup. Because it's not, it's not that easy. It's really not. Sorrow is real. Sorrow is biblical. It's an emotion that was built into you from the hand of your creator. But this morning, I'm not simply talking about depression. We get depressed and we get down at times. I know that. But we're talking about that feeling of having something that we loved, something that we connected to, but now is absolutely lost. Last Friday, I was at, a, at an event, and I was at, able to spend some time with a gentleman whose job, his full-time job, is that of a funeral director. It's what he does 
all the time, three, four, five funerals every week. And a lady that I was with struck up a conversation with him and, and asked a question that I thought was, was intriguing. She said, how do, how do you do it? How do you manage your life? What is it like going through your day when you're continually working with people who are in the lowest moments of their life? And she specifically asked about, she asked this, doesn't it become depressing when every day you're dealing with death? And his his answer actually surprised me. He says, as a funeral director... My job is actually very rewarding. I wouldn't have thought about rewarding. But he mentioned that, he says, people come into my office, and they're coming in in the lowest moment of their life, and they've lost their regular mental capacity to, to think straight. Sometimes they have absolutely no clue what to do. We're talking about simple things like go home. We're talking about simple things like take your first step, like I need you to, to breathe, or simple things like go for a drive, or we, need to, we still need to do the chores. We need to take out the trash, and simple things like We just need to take a moment to cry. And he says the reward comes when you've sat with a family for an hour and there's tears in in your office, but they walk away knowing that there is hope and knowing what to do next. Sometimes what to do next in a moment like this is the same thing that you did yesterday. But sometimes our sorrow becomes so deep that we can't find that same thing that we've done time and time again. But our sorrow becomes so deep that we don't know what to do. It reminded me of words of Jesus in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, it's one of the Beatitudes. It'll be up here on, this, uh, up here on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, it says, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who mourn. This morning we're going to be looking at sorrow from a biblical perspective. And I don't want you to get the impression that I'm going to give you a bunch of verses and you're just going to break out of your sorrow and everything is going to be joyful and like, woo, never have to deal with that again. No, it doesn't work that way. You're never going to simply be able to hear a a Bible verse or to replay a sermon from a pastor that's going to make you feel better and everything is amazing. But rather, it's when you feel the hand of Christ on your shoulder saying, child, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. That's the relief from our sorrow. Did you know that coming close to Christ during your time of sorrow, it doesn't mean that the sorrow is going to go away. It's absolutely a reminder that you're not alone, but it's a reminder that it is okay. It's okay to be sad. Every moment of sadness doesn't always turn into joy right now. It's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn, but we were never designed to do it alone. We were designed to do it with Christ right here next to us. 
We're designed to be in God's company. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles. We are in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 7 this morning as we look at this letter that Paul is writing to the church in the city of Corinth. At this time, when Paul is writing, he is in the city of Ephesus. He has been to Corinth. He was there for about a year and a half, and he had planted a church. He had planted, and in, 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 he had many believers in the area, and now he had gone on to continue his, his missionary journey into different areas. There was some infighting in the church, and there were some lawsuits going on between believers. There was a, there was a, a, a mess that was going on. But Paul, on his journey... One thing he liked to do was keep in touch with the churches that he had planted, that he had talked to, that he had raised up, and so he would write them letters. Second Corinthians is actually the fourth letter to the Corinthians. We have two of them, first and second Corinthians. So Paul has been moving through what we call Asia, Asia Minor, Macedonia. He's come into many different cities, and we're going to pick up the action in, uh, in verse number five. All throughout Paul's travels, he is faced with a massive amount of challenges, different cities that he might go to. There were obstacles. There are people that were out to get him. There were Jews that would follow him around who were trying to get rid of him. There were Gentiles he would come to their city. They didn't like him. There are politicians who want to banish him from their area. Then you've got business leaders who want to drive Paul out because what Paul is saying and preaching is bad for their business. And you've got church leaders who simply don't want him in their city. Paul's message is really striking a chord with a lot of people who aren't too terribly fond of Paul right now. In his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul is speaking to them here in this chapter out of a moment of sorrow. He's, he's depressed. He's down. His, his, his spirits are, uh, it's just one of those days that won't stop. You ever have one of those days that won't stop? Doesn't seem to stop? Follow me to 2 Corinthians. I'm in chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse number 5. Paul writes this. He says, when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. I wonder if you've ever felt your soul not having any rest. It's just always something, always something happening. It's the times when we are, when we're restless that we find Something's wrong. We're hardly restless when everything is going right. It's when we're restless that there are, this is what Paul says, battles on the outside and fear on the inside. Kind of makes sense. It's that conflict that he had to live through. When you, when you realize that everyone is out to get you. You know that time? Everyone is out to get you. And he is choosing to go into foreign territories, into foreign countries, some of them who don't want him there. So there is what he says, battles on the outside, but fear on the inside. It's that I don't really 
sleep very comfortably right now because I know that everyone is out to get me and I really can't get any rest. But I want you to see what happens in verse number six. Paul writes this. He says, but God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. Let me set this scene for you for a minute. So Paul is on his journey. He is out and about. He's moving from place to place. He had expected Titus to join them at some point, but not in this moment. It's not as if Titus could send him a text message and say, hey, Paul, you know what? I'm 20 minutes out. I'll meet you at the Farmer Boys. You know, he just, no, he's ministering and Titus shows up. He had sent for him quite a while ago. Titus is one of Paul's apprentices. Titus is going to end up leading a church and leading a, a group. Paul says, wow, that refreshed my soul. I want you to realize something. Titus would have been on the road to get to Paul for many, many, many days. God kept Titus safe so that he can come and join Paul at some point and be an encouragement to Paul. Titus just showing up? That was a great encouragement to Paul. You know that happens on days that we are just down. We're just, we, we, we can't find hope. And then something happens. Maybe you open up the mailbox. Maybe somebody knocks on the door. Maybe the phone rings and just changes your entire day. That's what happened. Titus finds Paul. He'd been expecting him. But now he's there. But the joyous nature that Paul is seeing now because Titus found him, it even goes deeper than that. I want you to see, check out the next verse with me. 2 Corinthians, I'm in verse number 7. Paul writes this, His presence was a joy, but so was the news that he brought of the encouragement we, he received from you. He told us how much you longed to see me and how sorry you are for what happened and how loyal you are to me. I was filled with joy. See, Titus came and brought this message to Paul from the church in Corinth. Not only did Titus brighten up Paul's day, but the message that Titus had, he just brought even more joy to Paul, lifted him up. Titus brought good news. The message from Titus turned Paul's day around. That happens, right? We recognize that in our own lives. I want you to write this down. This is point number one in your notes this morning. For those of you who might be joining us for the first time here uh, in, on campus or online, um, on the back of your bulletins, you've got some fill in the blanks, and I'm going to give you those to you, and, and the answers will be up here on the screen. How God makes himself known in our sorrow is often not the way that we anticipate. Throughout the Old Testament, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, they were waiting for relief. Almost from the time that they left slavery in Egypt, God gave them a way out, 
here's the plagues, here's the Passover, here's Pharaoh saying go and find, and go and then they leave and then there's the Red Sea parting, nation goes through, crashes down on the Egyptians, the whole story. Now they're out in the desert and they start complaining. Almost a thousand years, this entire nation is waiting for relief. They had a few victories throughout their history once they get through the desert and they get into the promised land, but their sin continued to leave them in moments of anguish constantly. Their sin would just lead them back into sorrow because, see, their distance from God would seem to be constant. They knew God. They knew God well, but they constantly drove a division between themselves and God. And that distance allowed them to fall victim to other rulers, to be captives in foreign lands, and it led to massive, massive destruction. We see in the Old Testament the rise and the fall of judges. We see the rise and the fall of kings. We see the rise and the fall of this very nation, even to itself, one that was mighty, one that was strong, and it, then it's broken in two. And then one of the parts of the two of this massive nation is eventually destroyed and dissolved into iniquity, never to be heard from again. And then we see because of a continued distance from God, the second part of the kingdom is overtaken and they're walked a thousand miles across the desert and they are now in captivity in a foreign land. And the influence of this foreign land just wreaks havoc on their closeness to God. Their nation never comes back the way that they were. They never come back as close to God as they were. And then we see prophet after prophet after prophet come to the remnants of the nation and tell them, we've got to come back to God. We've got to return to God. Until then, you're going to be in this place of torment. You're going to be in the depths of sorrow. We have got to come back. And they continue to turn their back on God. And the people cry out for somebody who is going to save them. They cry for the Messiah. See, their interpretation of the law, of the words of Moses, was that there was going to be a, a mighty warrior come to save them from their captivity. Towards the end of the Old Testament, the Jewish people are living back in their land, but they don't rule their own land. They are ruled by so many different governments, one after another after another. Fight these governments fight together, and the Jews end up the property of somebody else. And they're just praying for this Messiah, this leader, this warrior, this political, mighty man to come and save them. They're waiting for a military ruler 
to create a smooth exodus out of their sorrow and bring them this temporal and this worldly joy that'll put them in a national euphoria. And look, we, we made it through. Their problems were bigger than they could understand in their own eyes. Does that ever happen to us too? Like our problems could be bigger than we can even see. And they, the nation, they are just waiting on this knight in shining armor to come and save them. What they got, instead of a warrior on this white steed coming to vanquish all of their captors, what they got instead of a knight in shining armor was a knight in a cold town and a baby who was born and crying amongst the cattle doesn't really sound like the Savior they were looking for. See, God appeared in their misery, in their sorrow, but not in the way they had anticipated. God will appear in your sorrow, but he's not going to appear always in the way that you have anticipated. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, Isaiah writes this about a thousand years before Jesus is even born. And I want you to listen to what Isaiah is writing, prophesying about the Messiah. But I want you to put your mind in a position of somebody who's in the nation of Israel waiting for their political military leader, okay? Let's listen to, let's listen about their leader. I'm in Isaiah chapter 53 reads like this, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. Does that sound like a strong military and political leader? That's, that doesn't sound like a, like a tyrant, a national tyrant that's leading military causes. It's not what it sounds like to me. This is just one of many different examples throughout the entirety of the Bible that we can see that God brings spiritual relief to his children in ways that they did not expect. What is it that you want from God when you are in your lowest moments? It might be some sort of relief. I would bet that some of us have actually told God how it is that we want to be relieved from our sorrow. Oh, if you would just bring Mr. Wright. Oh, if you would just, if you would just put a, send a check to the mailbox, right? We tell God how to fix our sorrow at times, but you know what we're doing? We're actually limiting God's ability to bless us. Would it be fair to say that God can bless us in ways that we can't even imagine if we tell God, this is the only way that I am going to acknowledge a blessing? 
wow, we're limiting God's ability to bless us. I'm going to read you from Psalms today a few different times because the psalmists really seem to capture, from thousands of years ago, capture our sorrow really well in the Word of God. Follow me. I'm in Psalm number 42. I'm starting in verse number 2. It'll be up here on the screen. The psalmist says this, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet my God? My tears have been have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I, how I used to get to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. My Savior and my God, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you. Here's somebody who has absolutely been there. Trust me, you're not going anywhere that God has not already been. He's already been down this road. Our job in our sorrow is to praise and to come close. I'll say that again. Our job in our sorrow is to praise and to come close. I want you to write this down. This is the second point in your notes this morning. Sorrow isn't always a test, but is always a time to be tested. I'm going to explain that to you. Sorrow isn't always a test, but it is always a time to be tested. In the book of James, we're told, we're, told God's, uh, we're, we're told God is not going to tempt us. God may test our faith, but he's not going to tempt us. He's not going to tempt you towards sin. Sure, he wants to strengthen your faith. But not every bit of sorrow is a test. Not every time that something goes wrong in your life... Is this a moment that God has put in front of you for you to grow deeper in your faith because of the sorrow? Now, let me tell you, it's your reaction to the sorrow that is important. Sorrow is going to be there. It's part of life. It's our reaction. There's our test. How do we react in moments of our pain, in moments of our agony? How do you react when, when everything in the world seems to just be attacking you? When you wake up, the attacks are coming. Before you go to bed, they're still coming. I don't know if you've ever been depressed enough to where you just simply want to feel numb. It happens. The test is, what is our reaction. How do you react? Here's one. How do you react when it's time to say, I'm sorry? We talked about that last week. As one of the points in our notes last week was as, as Christians, we should always, we should live in a fear of disappointing God. 
How do we react when we have to say, I'm sorry? I want you to see this. This is from Psalm chapter 6, verse number 2. It reads like this. The psalmist says, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. You hear that? You feel that? We're not alone. We're not the first ones to go through this. Who are you crying out to in your time of sorrow? Let me tell you something. If you're going to cry to the world, I promise you the world will answer you. It will answer you fast. Some people get down deep in their sorrow and they cry for the bottle. I promise you the bottle will answer you. Some get so deep into their sorrow and they, and, the, and, they, and they cry for the needle. They cry for the drugs. I promise you the needle and the drugs will answer you. They will. They're there. Some people will cry out for that influence in their life that may have been the ones that got them here in the first place. I promise you, the world will be there to answer. They're not going to solve your sorrow. They're not going to turn it to joy. Only God can do that. But the world will answer. Who are you crying out for? Our test in our sorrow comes from our reaction. We've been talking about being focused this morning mostly on our own sorrows. But honestly, that could be somewhat of a selfish, selfish message if we just focused on ourselves and only looked to the inside. We also have to look at the things that bring sorrow to God. I wonder if sometimes we look at our day and we get down and we look around at the people in our lives that caused this. You did this to me. And, and, and there's just, there's a sorrow that somebody else has brought to us. But I wonder if we take the time to reflect on the sorrows that we bring to God. Every Christian knows that there is sin in our life. And every Christian knows that we don't make it to live in eternity with Christ our Savior with sin. You cannot take your sin with you. It has to be paid for. The Christian's sin is paid for by Jesus Christ. But in order for our sin to be paid for by Jesus, we have to acknowledge that our sin is actually sin. We have to acknowledge what our sin does to God. 
That's where repentance comes in. That's when we come to Christ and we say, I know that I have sinned. I am sorry for my sins. Here's the third point in your notes. This is so important. There cannot be repentance of sin without there being sorrow for sin. We can't go to Christ and say, please forgive me for these sins without being sorry for those sins. Because we've done something that requires a price to be paid. But somebody else paid that price for us. What good of it is it for us to go to God and accept redemption, but can we really accept redemption without being sorry for our sins, without having sorrow that we have brought to God? The same way that we could look down inside our souls eternally when somebody does us wrong, we can expect God to feel the same way when we do God wrong. It's right to have sorrow for our actions. The deepest sorrow we should ever feel in our entire lives should be our sorrow over our sin that we have committed against God. I'm going to take you to the book of Romans. This is Paul's letter in chapter 7. And we've read this before. I know, it's hard. We're humans. Paul was too. Wrote a third of the New Testament. Not a saint, a sinner still, like us. He says this, starting in verse number 18, Romans 7, verse 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm, I'm not really the one doing the wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. He goes on, verse number 20, 21, I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Watch this. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's, God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. But can't you hear his sorrow? He recognizes this. He says, I know that I am human. I'm struggling with this. But in every sin, I am sorrowful. In every sin, I am sorry. When we're raising children... We tell them, don't throw crayons at your sister. Tell your sister you're sorry. Don't throw crayons at your sister. Tell your sister you're sorry. 
Don't throw crayons at your sister. Tell your sister you're sorry. The goal is eventually to recognize that throwing crayons at your sister is not the proper behavior. We say things like, I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to be obedient. You know what God wants from us? God isn't necessarily interested in our sorrow. He wants our obedience. Would it be fair to say if we live a life of obedience to God, if we live a full life of obedience to God, it should be decreasing our sorrow of our sin. Amen? Here's the fourth and final point in your notes this morning. There is no sorrow in the presence of God. There is no sorrow in the presence of God. The further away that you get from God, the more sorrow you will feel. You can write that down too. You can put that up on your refrigerator. The further away you get from God, the more sorrow you will feel. There's sorrow in our world. It's built in. It's there. As a matter of fact, our, our world likes to create sorrow for you so that it can come with a fake answer to that sorrow, so that it can grab you. I don't even have to read Bible verses telling you what heaven is like, because I think that you probably know as well as I do that heaven is a lot better than what you and I are living here on earth like, right? We say this all the time. We say at, at funerals, even people that we're not even sure if this is true about, we say, eh, he's in a better place. We say, he's in a better place with no sorrow, with no pain. He's in a place with no... Put the next word on there, right? Clouds. There's so many things. We read this in Revelation chapter 21, verse number four. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eye and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. These things will be gone forever. Let me tell you, you're not going to find any of that gone forever here on earth. There is no sorrow in the presence of God. God doesn't live around sin. You can't take your sin into heaven with you. Sin brings sorrow. But there's no sin there. There's joy there. God is there. Christ is there. There is no crying there. There is no pain. All of these things are gone forever. Finally, there's an area in northern Chile, it's between the Andes Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. There's this, this little narrow strip of land where the sun, it shines like literally every single day. There's hardly ever any clouds in this area. People will say, people who have been there will say, it, it never rains here. I mean, you think Southern California has some gorgeous weather. This is gorgeous weather all the time. Every day at noon, the sun is shining brightly. Every evening, there's just this picturesque, beautiful sunset. Sometimes you can see storms on the horizon, but they never get there. 
they never get to this strip area. The sun just shines warm days all over this strip, just this one territory. It is a beautiful place. And you might say, this is just amazing wilderness here. And it is, it's like heaven. It's beautiful here. But there's no streams of water there. Nothing grows there. It's desolate because all there is is sunshine. See, we often think that sunshine and continuous joy in life are there to purposefully deprive us of heartache and tears. Sometimes we need those. Just like sun and rain in this land in Chile, it needs both in this land for anything to grow, but it's missing one of them. It doesn't get rain, so nothing grows. In our hearts, though, sometimes we need an occasional downpour so that we could recognize the challenges that God's pulling us through, amen? The showers are going to come, but here's the thing. They're also going to end. They are a season. The rain will come, but the sun is going to shine again. We need to continue. We have to continue to come closer to God. I mentioned this last week. When you are in your deepest state of depression, when you cannot see where you are going, I want you to get out your Bible. We need to get into God's Word. We need to get deep into God's Word. Psalm chapter 30, verse number 5 says this. It says, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but you've read this. Joy comes in the morning. It's temporary. Sometimes our tears are there for a reason. Psalm 25, verse 15 says this. My eyes are are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve my troubles of my heart. Re relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me? Guard my life and rescue me. Don't let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. So how do we take a sermon like this that talks about us and our personal sorrow, and we see the sorrow that we bring to God, and how do we make all this make sense in our lives? No, we have to understand, we have to realize that every single moment God is with us and he is surrounding us with a world of joy. It's as if he has his arms around us and a deep heart of joy and he knows that we are in, in our sorrow. Sometimes we're not letting our sorrow move to the side so God's joy can come in. 
It's sad to say, but sometimes we find comfort in our sorrow. Sometimes we dive deep into our sorrow because we feel we can control that. But what we do, what we do is we push our sorrow deeper, but we're pushing God's joy away at the same time. They can't live together. God does not reside in the presence of sorrow. He has joy. He has a way for us. God didn't give you a gift of sorrow, but he does give you a way out. There's a way. There's a path. He says, come closer to me. Finally, I'll let you know that here in our world, we do live in this world of instant gratification. In a handful of letters and a tweet, we think that we could solve the world's problems. Sometimes we didn't fall this deep into sorrow in a day. It's going to take more than a couple of minutes listening to a verse of the day or seeing a post on Facebook to bring us out. How deep, how close to God are you? How close to God do you need to be? And are we spending enough time to get close enough? The world will tell you you're already close enough. Gauge your sorrow right now, and let's see, are we close enough? Probably not. Probably need a little more time. We probably need a lot more time. That's where our walk with Christ becomes regular. That's where our walk with Christ becomes habit. That's where our walk with Christ becomes part of life, not just something that we do, but something that we are. That's a life living in God's joy. Joy is there, but the sorrow isn't necessarily always, always simply a river of tears that is there for no reason. Sometimes we can't see the sun unless we go through the rain, amen?